This episode of Meet Your Maker is brought to you by Offset, one of the world's most inspirational conferences for design and creative industries. Each year, over 2,500 attendees come together in Dublin, Ireland, to hear speakers like animator Kirsten Lepore, who created that globally viral and kind of creepy Hi Stranger video. Hi Stranger. It's been a while. Making your own film is extremely hard. I mean, I know so many people that make films and then, you know, at the beginning of the film, they were one person. At the end, they feel like a completely different person. They're just like extra embarrassed to show the film and they'll just keep it on a hard drive and no one will ever see it. No, no job or anything is ever going to come if no one sees the work. So This year, Offset takes place March 23rd to the 25th and speakers include comics icon Chris Ware, Academy Award-nominated animator Nora Toomey and Dan Gray, the producer of Monument Valley. You can see the lineup so far on iloveoffset.com. That's iloveoffset.com. This episode of Meet Your Maker contains some swearing. Okay, let's start the show. All right, hi, I'm MB. Right now we're standing outside the South Bank Center waiting for Ira, who may or may not have left already. <laughs> and we're, we are waiting for God to show us a sign by either turning off the lights inside or, or for Ira to walk out the door, whichever comes first. What is this compulsion we all have to meet our heroes? Like, we know they get stopped all the time. Maybe it's the only tangible way we feel we can express our gratitude to them. Well, whatever it is, it has led me and three strangers to standing outside the artist's entrance of the South Bank Centre in London, waiting for Ira. Ira Glass, the host of This American Life. I'm Maria. Um, I'm from Putney. I'm the one that's come, like, the least distance. And, yeah, I'm here. We've been waiting for how long now? An hour, an hour and a half. An hour and a half. But... No, that's not Ira. Um, <laughs> <laughs> waiting for Ira. Hopefully he'll come out. <laughs> We've all just been to see the show. Three acts, two dancers and one radio host. I'm Ira Glass with This American Life. What's this show? Well, I tell stories. They dance. Stories about love and losing those you love and about what it is like to dance for a living. And... They pull out all the stops. Like every trick I have. Sparklers. Rain curtains, sparklers. Batons. <laughs> Batons. And yes, we know nobody listens to my radio show thinking, you know what this needs is some dancers. Nobody sits through a dance show thinking, you know what this needs is a guy talking and playing clips of audio. But we brought down the house at Carnegie Hall. This, I'll be completely sincere, is one of my favorite things I have ever been part of. I'd flown over from Ireland just for one night to see the show. I hadn't planned on trying to meet Ira, but afterwards, as I'm making my way out of the theatre, I overhear a woman asking the usher where the artist's entrance is. And I'm like, she wants to meet Ira. I want to meet Ira. I didn't realise meeting Ira was an option. I didn't quite catch where the usher directed the woman, so I decide to follow her, which brings me outside the building, down some steps, and to a door around the back marked artist's entrance. The woman I'd followed is Amanda. I'm Amanda and I'm here waiting at the door for Ira, who we all love (laughs) and don't want to freak out, (laughs) but probably will. (laughs) I was in the front row and I was walking out and I went past one of the like stage 
hand people and I thought oh I should ask them like where do you go to uh, asked for an autograph and um, thought no I can't do that that's too embarrassing and then there was another one and I was like this is your chance so I asked that one and Maria overheard me asking yeah. and then we walked we down here together discussing how much we yeah. loved this American life and then we picked up people on the way and for me <laughs> <laughs> we picked up the groupies but for me like my husband knew that I was going to do this anyway so like he, I, di- I didn't have to finish my sentence. He was just like, "Are you gonna?" And I'm like, "Yep, I'm gonna." So he knows this is gonna be like. It could be a late night. Because I've done this before. I've done this. I've, not with Ira, like outside his house. <laughs> but like, I've I've waited for Bill Bailey before, but he came out quickly. He was like ready for it. What should we do now? We've been here like an hour and a half. Like who who I'm interested is gonna stay the longest. I think we should all make the decision to go at the same time. Otherwise. No, we're not. We sneak off and hide behind pillars, and we're like, they've gone, and then scurry back. It's like what he said in the show. If we believe it's going to happen, it's going to happen. So we've got to, like, wait, but with, like, energy and, like, really wait. The end of that story was that it didn't happen. (laughs) That's because they were waiting for the lottery, but Ira, there's more chance. We know he's in the building. The odds are better. It turns out that myself, Amanda, Maria and MB, who you heard at the start, all came to this show alone to see our hero. But we've formed this little band, this little clique of audio geeks. We've been waiting close to two hours now, so MB decides to go and ask the guy at the security desk if Ira is still even in the building. Oh, but he looks suave. He look, He's sauntering. Disappointed. Disappointed. <laughs> he just said it's a big building. So... Uh, okay, so we just had an update or a non-update. <laughs> um, we asked one of the security staff if they knew where Ira Glass was, and he said that there's no way to know. Massive building, many exits. Good luck. That sounds like a challenge. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> the Southbank Center is a big building with many entrances and exits, and it is conceivable that Ira left out of any one of them two hours ago. And it's not like we can stay here all night either. Maria has a train to catch. Amanda has kids at home. Time is not on our side. But undeterred and driven by whatever madness makes you want to meet your heroes, we decide to stay. Wait it out. For Ira. And we'll return to the South Bank Centre a little later on in our programme to find out what happens. On today's show, we have four stories of people meeting their heroes in very different ways. I'm Liam Garrity. It's time to meet your maker. (coughs) Excuse me. Meet your maker. Chances are, if you ask someone who they'd really, really love to meet, it will be a musician, which is the case for Dave Milstein. I'm a lawyer of sorts at a professional services firm here, and uh, yeah, live here in beautiful Queens, New York. Dave's musical icon, Shane McGowan of The Pogues. I've been loving you a long time Down all the years, down all the days 
So I was trying to think before I talked to you about the first time I even heard of them and how that all started. And I'm pretty sure at the uh, dawn of alternative rock, when uh, I grew up pretty much till I was 12, only listening to hip hop and rap music, I saw a uh, Spin magazine with like uh, Scott Weiland on the cover of Stone Temple Pilots. <laughs> and then somewhere in there, they just had a little paragraph article about, you know, uh, I think uh, The Snake had just come out, his first solo album. And they had just like a little profile of Shane in some pub somewhere. Just the way it was written, I was like, who the hell is this guy? Because the thing was written like, he's still here. And, uh, you know, every time he'd get up to go to the bathroom, there were people slapping him on the back. And I couldn't tell if it was to give him a little bit of luck or to take some from him, you know. And I was just like, this guy sounds fascinating. And then um, when I got really into shoplifting, I stole the cassette of If I Should Fall From Grace. And that was probably like 94 or something like that. <laughs> and then it just kind of went from there. And so they were like, they've been my number one for a really long time. Around 2002, Dave heads off for a big backpacking trip around Europe. And one of his stops is in London. And one of my main stops was going to be, if you have the album The Snake, if you open it up, Shane and the whole band are in front of this pub. And again, this is before really, you know, Yelp or uh, even TripAdvisor. There's really no way to look this stuff up then. So it was just this mystical looking bar called Filthy McNasty's. And I was like, wow, that's got to be... If Shane McGowan has that in his album, like that's a stop. That, that's number one on the bucket list when I get to London. So he tracks down the pub. Filthy McNasty's goes in, has a couple of beers, but being a Shane McGowan fan, he just has to ask the question. So I just kind of turned to this guy next to me. I was like, hey man, um, does, does Shane McGowan drink here at all? And he just looks at me and he's like, hey. you know, he turns to someone, he's like, Tommy, check out what this guy, this guy just asked if Shane McGowan still drinks here. <laughs> and then the bartender starts cracking up and people are just like laughing. And I was like, all right, I'm sorry. I just, uh, I thought maybe he was known to come here or... And the bartender basically like walks over with a towel and he's like, that fucking prick is not allowed back in this pub till the day it burns down. So I was like, all right, fair enough. That sounds very Shane McGowan-esque. But it was a great pub and it was awesome. So I had a good time, whatever. So I go on jaunting around Europe. Maybe two and a half months go by, three months. I forget how long exactly it was. And at one point I ended up over in Ireland and I went to this record shop and they had like the coolest, I wanted to get a, I had all these little bucket list things in different countries and stuff. So I was like, I want to get a Thin Lizzy t-shirt in Ireland. So this shop had like the coolest Thin Lizzy shirt with like Phil in it rocking out on the cover. And then I went back to London. So now I have two days left in London. So my second to last night, I was like, you know what? I don't know what the hell I'm doing in London. Rather than wander around, I think I'm just going to go back to uh, Filthy McNasty's. That was a good spot. And so I'm just drinking a pint and reading Time Out London. And then this article is like, they're reviewing some place and they're like, well, you can find a uh, local drunk Shane McGowan slumped over a couch here on any Saturday night. <laughs> and I was like, whoa. So it was uh, the Boogaloo bar, but it was kind of far from where Filthy McNasty's was. I asked the bartender, I was like, where, where is this place? Can I get over there? And he's like, well, it's not near here, but, you know, an hour and a half on the metro maybe, and you could get, get over there. I've never been there. So I figured, a day left on this trip, you know, fuck it. It was pretty great. It was definitely packed. They're having a pub quiz. So it's totally full, and I was like, all right, let me figure out what to do here. So I got a beer, and I saw a table that was kind of open with some guys doing the pub quiz, and I was like, you know, do you mind if I join? I'm just wandering around. They're like, yeah, join, get on the team. So we're doing the pub quiz. 
and I forget exactly what it was, but there was some question like, this guy sang Fairy Tale of New York. And I was trying to, you know, join in. It was like, oh, that's uh, Shane McGowan, the Pogues. And they're like, yeah, we know, that guy. And I'm like, what guy? And they're like, that guy, right there. And I look over and Shane's just sitting there. Holy shit, he is here. Like, the timeout just literally told me to come right to the right place. <laughs> We're hanging out, we do the pub quiz, whatever. And then uh, London being what it is, you know, 10.50, they call it last call. And I was like, all right, guys, see you later. And uh, I decided to move a little closer. I'm being such a... And I don't really... I, I've met famous people before. I don't, I've don't. i almost never been starstruck in my life, but he's really, like, my number one guy, and especially at this time. And I was just like, wow, I can't believe it. So I moved a little closer, and I was, like, just kind of, like, ogling him, like, wow, that's Shane McGowan. Look at that. And, uh, you know, it gets, now it's, like, 10.55. They're like, seriously, finish him up. Get out of here. And, uh... I'm looking at him, and then at one point, he just kind of looks up, and we make eye contact, and he does a kind of like, <laughs> and like kind of raises a glass to me, you know, five tables away, and I raise it to him, and he goes back to smoking and drinking, and I was, part of me was like, all right, that's, that's good, that's a good story, I raised a glass to Shane McGowan, I can go, and then I had that little voice in the back of my head that was like, that's not good enough, you're gonna be 50 one day, and you're, you're just gonna be pissed off that you didn't do it, and you, you gotta go talk to him, what's wrong with you? And, uh, you know, now that I'm older, I really wouldn't have thought two seconds about it, but I guess I was like maybe 22 at the time and I was just like all nervous and I was like, just do it, just go talk to him. So I got up and they're really, I think the manager was like, kid, you, you really got to leave, like we're closing. So I walked over and he's holding court with like a couple of his friends that are getting their, their jackets on and stuff. And I was like, Hey, uh, Shane, um, can I just get a picture with you? And he's like, yeah, yeah, of course. And so uh, I sit down, his friend takes a picture, and I'm just trying to get lost immediately. So I'm like, thank you so much. I'm a huge fan. Thank you very much. I'll see you later. And I'm starting to walk away, and he's like, ah, sit down. What's your name? I was like, uh, my name's Dave. Um, and he's like, no, 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 sit down, sit down. What are you drinking? And I was like, I'll, I'll have a beer. And I was like, I can't believe this is happening. Why am I really sitting here? And his friends are getting their stuff together. And uh, Shane's just sort of, he's like, hey, well, where are you from? And uh, instead of explaining the whole story of where I, exactly I live in New York, I, I would just say Brooklyn when I was there. So I was like, oh, I'm from Brooklyn. And he's like, hey, Brooklyn, hey, Brooklyn guy. And I was like, yeah. And I'm, I'm still very like, uh, what the heck is going on? And then so after a couple minutes, his friends are, you know, they're like, goodbye, Shane, we're leaving, we're leaving. And then um, one of his friends, this older guy, he shakes my hand and I get up to shake his hand and he's like, all right, nice meeting you, Dave. And I was like, hey, nice to meet you too. And then he grabs my hand and pulls me in super close. And he's just like, in my ear, he's like, if you give him any drugs, I'll fucking kill you. And I was like, I'm not here to give him any drugs. I'm just saying hello. And he's like, okay, Dave, see you later. Have a good night, everyone. Bye. <laughs> and they all, they all leave. So that kind of set the tone for, I guess, what happens with him very often, at least at that point in his life. <laughs> so they all leave and I'm still kind of like, why the hell am I still here? And then I hear the door lock and I kind of got lost in the moment. And I look over and there's just nobody in the, nobody's there except for the manager and then me and Shane. And me and Shane are just sitting on either side of this couch. It was as if this, there was nothing weird about this to him at all. Like, it was just like, okay, I'm just here with Dave and the uh, guy that owns the place. You know, I guess a London pub would close at 11. And I was pretty much there till at least 4.30 in the morning, I think. 
it was a lot of me kind of sitting there and thinking of things I just wanted to ask him and my mind kind of going blank because it was so bizarre and and trying to it was one of those moments where you just sort of you're like I need to remember every single second of this but I'm not a robot but I'm trying to just remember every second of it the whole time I was sitting there so so we're drinking and anytime he just kept being like can I get you something else and I'd be like uh I'll just have a uh I'll have another beer and then it was just like this procession of like the most just random things where I I try to just probe him about anything and he he couldn't have been more open and just willing to you know chat and talk and like uh and you know a lot of people were like oh he must have been just a mess and just and you could just tell physically yes he he was pretty sloppy and messy but his mind was so razor sharp like one thing that sticks out is at one point he put on a fever by i think it's little willie john and i think i said uh, like oh little sammy john or something he's like little willie john 1958 decca records or whatever it is <laughs> like he, he just knew immediately you never know how much i love you never know how much i care when you put your arms around me i get a feeling that's so hard to bear you give me fever so I was wearing the Thin Lizzy shirt, and I wasn't wearing that to try to go out and impress Shane McGowan or whatever. I just, you know, it was everything I had on me was filthy from backpacking for two months, so that was my new t-shirt, so I had that on. We're sitting there, and we're just kind of like having this con- weird conversation, and he's like, is that, uh, is that Phil Lennon? And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, my shirt, yeah, it's Phil Lennon. And he's like, I, we toured with Phil Lennon. And he's like, yeah, I got this bracelet from Phil Lennon. And he has this metal bracelet that you can see, and I think he just always wears it. And he's got this, like, little metal chain bracelet. And I was like, get out of here, that's amazing. He's like, yeah, yeah, you, you want to swap? And I was like, swap bracelets, what? And he's like, no, swap shirts. And I was like, uh, okay, yeah, let's swap shirts. So... <laughs> In the middle of the pub where, like, I'm just, I take my shirt off. And I think that may have actually happened before the lockdown. I think just, maybe just before everyone left. Because I remember being like, am I seriously taking my shirt off in the middle of this pub right now? And what he was wearing, I had this, like, cool, you know, Thin Lizzy shirt. He gives me this button-up, short-sleeved, ugly silk shirt that I still have in a shopping bag in my parents' house. That it just reeks of body odor and uh, Old Spice deodorant or cologne and the funny thing about that shirt though is like when i eventually got home just skipping ahead when i got home and i there used to be this pogues fan site that doesn't exist anymore and it was just some weird you know stalker people that would put up every single photo ever taken of him like week by week arranged by date um and i went on there just to see if somehow maybe i was in a picture or something and there's photos from the week before of him in Ireland, and it's like Shane visiting his sister Siobhan in Ireland, and she's giving him a present, and she's giving him that shirt. <laughs> Only like seven days before he gave it to me. <laughs> I, I remember the pub quiz, there was, you know, like a photo element of name this band. At some point, that was laying in front of us, and I was like, oh, um, so how'd you do on the pub quiz? And he's like, oh, we did okay. Um, but we couldn't get some of the picture ones. And he's he, <laughs> he's like, is this the Beastie Boys? And it's a photo of Blink-182. <laughs> and I was like, no, no, it's not the Beastie Boys. <laughs> At some point, he excuses himself to go over to the jukebox that he's putting on songs. And just like everything he put on was just great. 
in like a really cool way. He, you know, there was no, he wasn't just putting on like, uh, I don't know, like the easy fun, like everything was just cool. Like it was like, I think that there was like a Southside Johnny song, but then that would go into uh, like Nancy Sinatra and then that would go into like the specials or like, it was just like a great playlist but Shane disappeared into this bathroom and it's just me and the manager guy and he's kind of without looking up he's just sort of like if you don't go home now you're gonna spend three days with him and (laughs) and you know in my head I was like that's kind of fine with me I kind of do want to do that not to go on some psychedelic bender or something but just to like be around the guy I was like I'll do that uh, despite having a flight in the morning and everything, um, or the next day, but I got the hint, you know? So I was like, okay, yeah, no problem. And he's like, I'll call you a cab. And I'm like, okay, yeah, absolutely. I am gone. The second you need me out of here, I'm gone. And so I got up, they called the cab. And, uh, I think I was just profusely, you know, thank you so much, Shane. I'm never going to forget this night. This was absolutely incredible. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, of course he's like, well, what was, what's your name again? And I'm like, Dave. <laughs> so I walk out. <laughs> and I get into the cab that he called. We get in the cab, and the guy, the cabbie's like, late night? And I'm like, yep. And he's like, that's not your shirt, is it? And I was like, nope. And he's like, Shane McGowan? And I'm like, yep. <laughs> Dave Milstein. You'll find photos from Dave's night out with Shane McGowan on our website, meetyourmaker.ie. After the break... How far would you go for an autograph? 101 The Ways We Learn is a new podcast series that explores how people learn new things. It's hosted by physicist Dr. Shane Bergen and volcanologist Dr. Jane Chadwick. In each episode, Jane and Shane follow a different person learning something new. From swimming to cycling, coding to cooking, activism to graphic design. And use these as an opportunity to explore the learning process from lots of different perspectives. So maybe just start scooting. Can you scoot? Can you define scooting or scooting? So to scoot, I think just take your feet and push um, to move yourself forward. Yes. Okay. So you can even do it like walking. Imagine you're walking except you're sitting on a bike. I am walking except I'm sitting on a bike. You don't look silly at all right now. (laughs) I feel extremely silly right now. 101 is for anyone interested in learning or teaching. You can find out more on 101thepodcast.com. That's 101thepodcast.com. Our next story, Dear Amy. When she was a kid in Waterford, Ireland, Amy O'Connor began writing to celebrities, asking for their autographs. I went to, do you remember that band Six that won Irish pop stars? So they did a concert in Tremor down in Waterford and I went to it. And afterwards, Six were signing autographs and there was like hordes of, you know, nine, 10, 11 year olds waiting to get their autographs. So I waited, I didn't get their autograph, but I did get the autograph of the bands that supported them. So it was a band called like D-Side and Divine. Never did a thing again, but I, I got posters of them signed and I was, it really kind of appealed to me having this like kind of, I guess just like a thing you could hold and like in my head I kind of thought they'll become really famous and it'll be worth a lot for someday. I was only like 10 at the time or something. Amy gets home from this concert not only with her signed posters but also with the kind of manic money-making scheme that children love concocting. 
She immediately begins researching autographs and finds a website called the Star Archive. That was like an autograph community online, the first one, I think, on the internet. And it was where like autograph collectors used to go and exchange tips about like what addresses worked for certain celebrities. But because it was kind of the early days of the internet, like a lot of celebrities were just building their web presence. So I used to just email like any celebrity. So I remember the first autograph I ever got was the governor of Wyoming and I got his signature. And so why Why him? Because he replied. Like, it was honestly just, like, there was, you'd get updates, like a list of updates every day. And beside their name, there'd be little symbols. So they had, like, a little at email symbol. And if that was there, then you knew the celebrity replied by email. So I used to just be on the hunt for these every day and would write them regardless of who they were, if I'd ever heard them. So most of the people, when I started, are complete nobodies. Like, I can't emphasize enough. They have never done anything again. Say in the first month, I'd say I got like 30 autographs. Like every day it would just be like four letters coming through, all from America. And they were all like, like home shopping network hosts and stuff. Like people, I'm writing really nice letters to me. And I can't even, again, I can't stress how horrible my letters were to them. Like just no thought into them whatsoever. It was just like I copy and paste my emails every time. It was just like, my name is Amy O'Connor and I'm 11 years old. I'm a big fan of yours. Will you send me your autograph to this address? Thanks, Amy. (laughs) Like so impersonal. You were a very savvy 10-year-old to be... Yeah, I was. Well, I was really into things that were, like, worth stuff, I think. Like, I was, like... No, I was, like... I was always watched the Antiques Roadshow and stuff with my mom. So I was really kind of conscious of things being valuable. And I always wrote letters as well. I always had pen pals. So it kind of was a natural fit. Like, at the time, we had dial-up internet. So you couldn't go on until, like, after 6 o'clock. And, like, once 6 o'clock came, like, I was on the computer, on the Star Archive, looking at, like, you know, what celebrities had replied to people that day or whatever. My dad definitely, like, humoured it a lot. Like, when i come home from school, he'd be like, this, these are the letters you got. And so my mom, I think, just thought it was totally weird. And was still regarded as weird. <laughs> Even though I did it for years. <laughs> Now, some of them are definitely fakes. Like, it's definitely assistants doing signatures and stuff. How did you know they were fakes? Um, well, that was, like, part of what the Star Archive was all about. So there was a few different acronyms that people used to use. So, like, an SP was just a signed picture, but an ISP was an inscribed signed picture. But a SEC was a secretarial, and that's when it was a fake. And then they also had another one, uh, what was it? It was like when a machine did it. That was like a lot of politicians would use just like machine. So who did you write to who you actually were a fan of? Like I got like Luciano Pavarotti. (laughs) And it's like a photo of him like in a like kind of Hawaiian shirt. And it's just signed. But I was kind of like really like, whoa, like he is so famous. Like and I have his autograph. And like I couldn't really share it with anyone in school because like... No other children care about, like, these, like, old-time celebrities or whatever. If Amy wanted someone's autograph but wasn't particularly into them, she had a special method of composing a letter. She'd lie. No matter who I was writing to, I would say, like, I want to emulate your success. Like, I would always say to actors, like, I want to be an actor. Like, had no, like, interest in becoming an actor. I'd never acted in my life. Like, there's the writer Doris Kearns Goodwin. And she's uh, really famous for this book a few years ago called Team of Rivals, which was, like, inspired Barack Obama. And it was all about, like, she's won Pulitzer Prizes and stuff. And I wrote to her and I was like, Dear Doris Kearns Goodwin, my name is Amy O'Connor and I'm 15 years old. I, too, would like to be a historical writer. Like, you know, complete lies. But, like, she wrote back, like, a three-page letter. Was super impressed, I think. Every so often, getting a letter to someone would require some detective work and for Amy those people
people were worth the effort. Harper Lee, I wrote to, and that was like like a big pursuit of mine. Amy had studied to kill a mockingbird in school and was genuinely interested in her. And I was also doubly interested in her because she never wrote back to people. So I was kind of really determined to actually get her autograph. So I found her sister, who was a lawyer at the time, her law office, I think in Alabama and I wrote to her and like three weeks later I had a letter back from Harper Lee which has been verified and it said it was really sweet actually it had um, a postmark from Montgomery, Alabama on the envelope as well which is like so special it said Dear Miss O'Connor I hope this gets to you because I have not a clue how much postage to put on it to Waterford, Ireland thank you for your letter I did enjoy it sincerely Harper Lee and it's dated as well it's quite rare. Like, I've looked into it, like, so much. Like, once a year, I'll kind of start looking up, like, Harper Lee autographs and see if any have recently gone for a lot of money. But it is quite rare. Like, she only, like, she occasionally signed books, like, say, back when To Kill a Mockingbird was published or whatever. But there isn't that many documented correspondences between her and fans. So I think it was the fact that I was very young. Like, I was 15 or 16 and also had clearly gone to great lengths to drag her down and wrote a very nice letter as well. Like, like she was willing to reply. Amy stopped writing to celebrities in her late teens, but she does enjoy leafing through her scrapbooks, which have autographs from Judy Dench, Jason Schwartzman, Hugh Grant, even Bridget Bardot. For me, what it definitely says is that like I was obsessed with fame. Like I was really into like just fame and success. Maybe like kind of needy of approval or something, or just kind of wanting to I don't know, maybe I was just like a bit of a star fucker, do you know what I mean? Like kind of wanted to be in those circles. Like, and this was the closest I could get to it. But no, I actually, I have to say, I do really enjoy like going through the photo, like, you know, say like different albums, like I said earlier, kind of, they represent different parts of like, you know, my teenagehood. So like some are like all about Glee. Like I was really into the show Glee. So I've got like a lot of cast members of Glee. For a while I was into US politics. So then I've got like a, good number of governors or I was into Broadway and I've got like you know uh, say the guy who wrote Wicked and the guy who wrote Chicago and like all these Broadway stars and playbills and stuff signed and yeah so it's kind of interesting so I do like going through them and also like every so often you kind of remember oh I do have this dead person's autograph (laughs) like I don't know like uh, who like James Gandolfini I have James Gandolfini's autograph and every so often I'll see that and I'm like oh could sell that I'm Marty Beckerman. I'm a journalist and author. We're in Brooklyn, New York, and I do not have a beard or a man bun. But I have one of those things, so I kind of fit in. (laughs) Yes, Liam is the most Brooklyn Irish guy ever. He fits right in. Marty has our next story of meeting his hero, fear and loathing in Las Vegas author Hunter S. Thompson. Hunter Thompson was promoting what would be his final book, Kingdom of Fear in New York, and I was the first journalist to put in a request to interview him. I was only 19 years old. I was a college student, but I was the first one to put in the interview request for when he would be in New York, and I was the first one to get an answer. Yes, you can have the interview. I was supposed to meet him at his hotel, at the Carlisle Hotel, in the afternoon. He was staying under the pseudonym Mr. Joe, but there was a big snowstorm in Colorado, and his plane was delayed. I had to be back 
in Washington, D.C. for a midterm exam for college. I couldn't skip this test. I would flunk out of college. I would be failed out of college if I missed this exam. So I had to get out of New York that night back to school. And Hunter Thompson's plane was delayed hour after hour after hour. I was on the phone with his publicist all day. Is there any word when he's getting in? No. Plane's delayed. Don't know when he's getting in. Finally, his plane landed at midnight. I had to leave that night. My academic future, the rest of my life was on the line. And I asked his publicist on her cell phone, is there just any way we can do anything? And she's like, no, it's over. Windows closed. Sorry, it's not going to happen for today. It's got to be tomorrow. Well, it can't be tomorrow. So at midnight, I call Hunter Thompson's room, and I get his girlfriend on the phone, his future wife, Anita. And I explain the situation. I say I had this interview lined up. It was approved. But I have to get back tonight. I have to get back to school. I have to do this test. Or else I'm going to flunk college. Is, is there anything we do? Can I get five minutes on the phone? And she says, no, Hunter's had a really long day. He's tired. He's been traveling. The snowstorm. He's not in any mood to do an interview. And then in the background, I hear, does the boy have drugs? work out a deal if I can get to their hotel room in half an hour with marijuana and a marijuana pipe I can have five minutes of his time I was staying at NYU with my girlfriend at the time we found the dorm drug dealer we paid I think $50 for $10 worth of pot for a last minute order and we took a cab we were screaming at the cab driver the whole way we got to the Carlisle Hotel and we went up to the room and what I thought would be a five minute interview wound up being an hour with the guy who made me want to be a writer with my hero and he already had hash and coke there it was just a test it's a fucking test got to ask him about his career and his early books and his inspirations and what he thought about the world at the time and just every question I could have had at 19 years old asking your hero every question you'd want to ask and his charisma was incredible and it was like no one I've ever met. I mean, he, he glowed. It was, he's a legend for a reason. A year later, he killed himself, and I think I didn't appreciate it at the time. This was the only chance I would have ever had to meet him. And it happened, and that chance was never going to come again. I think when you're a reporter, you always think, oh, well, there's always that chance I can interview my heroes. I can finagle and finagle an interview somehow, pull the right strings. And it's always in the back of your head, oh, I would like to interview that guy. Yeah, if I could ever get in a room with them, it would be the best conversation ever. But there's a finite amount of time to that, especially with people that are maybe a generation or two removed. So that was the only chance I would have ever had to interview him, and it happened. And I feel very, very lucky that it fell into place like that and that I was able to get home and pass my test and graduate from college and not be destitute. I asked him, a lot of your contemporaries from the 60s have passed on. How does it feel to be the last buffalo? I guess I was asking him, what does it feel like to be an elder statesman of the hippie movement? But maybe he took it a different way. The fact he called me a morbid little bastard was pretty, uh, a pretty great honor. But yeah, you mostly try to learn what you can and try not to embarrass yourself too much. Because I guess once upon a time he was a fanboy of somebody else and... Well, I think when you're starting out as a writer, you're always going to copy your 
your heroes and your influences and you're going to try to be the next them. That was really in my head. At first I wanted to be the next Dave Barry and then the next Hunter Thompson and then the next Brett Easton Ellis. I think that finding your own voice is really about saying, well, I don't want to be the next someone. I want to be the first me. I think that's a step every writer needs to take at some point where you're like, what's the impact? What's the mark I'm going to make? Where it's maybe when you're starting off, that appeal of being the next someone feels, well, I can do what they did. But you can't. Their life experiences shaped them, and your life experiences shaped you. And what makes you special as a writer is what you have that's unique, that no one else can bring to the table. And we'll probably always want some of those elements of the people we really look up to, but at some point, you have to say, I'm not going to be the next Hunter Thompson. I'm not, A, that good, and B, I didn't come from the circumstances that he did. I didn't see what the 60s were like, and the police riots, and the counterculture, but I can bring to the table other things that maybe aren't going to have the same cultural impact, but you have to be you. You you can't be someone else. So let's return to the Southbank Centre in London at the artist's entrance, where three hours later, myself, MB, Maria and Amanda, a bunch of strangers brought together for their love of one radio host, are still waiting for Ira. I think we've waited yeah, almost as long as the show now. So. That's, that's true. That's, like, that's, 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 that's so true. Point. It's now five past 11. My husband just said he's gone to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> the past three hours, we have been pleading with the security guard for information, to which he keeps responding that he can't say anything. But then... He's still here. If you didn't catch that, that was the security guard breaking his silence, letting us know Ira Glass is still in the building. Maria asking, is he with other people? And the guard saying, I'm security, I can't tell you that. He must have admired our determination because he also tells us that he'd rang upstairs and let Ira know that we'd been waiting. And then, a few minutes later... Ira Glass and the two dancers from the show, Monica Bill Barnes and Anna Bass, emerge. Uh, I heard, I heard like a woman backstage. We've never been in a theater which has like a backstage part where you were waiting. What time is it? <laughs> I feel like you don't even should get an autograph. I feel like we should like, give you money or something. That's Ira saying he feels like he should give us money instead of an autograph for our persistence. We settle for a group photograph, which Ira suggests we should all do this big pose that makes us look like we've just done a rousing dance routine. Do people usually hang around outside? Like, have you... No. No, almost never. Like, Anna? Like, people almost never hang around. You guys are a rare breed. Yeah. Especially for this long. After some photographs and chatting, we thank them for their time, they thank us for ours, and we say goodbye. And all four of us are left with this euphoric feeling. We all just met our hero, and he was friendly and funny. And we all just have this relief that we met the maker of the thing we love.
Meet Your Maker was produced and hosted by me, Liam Garrity. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, a great way to do that is to review us on iTunes or just tell a friend about us. You'll find lots of photos from the stories in today's episode on meetyourmaker.ie, including that epic Ira Glass group photo. We're currently offering sponsorship slots from this or all new season, season two. So if you're a business who'd like to support our podcast, we'd love to hear from you. The contact form is on meetyourmaker.ie. See you next week. Mm-hmm.